Good morning. Um, I had asked Eric recently what uh, the church has been preaching through the last few years ago, and it was pretty heavy in the New Testament, which is fine. So that made me think, well, we need to do something in the Old Testament. And then I prayed about it and prayed about it, and, and the Lord led me to Ecclesiastes. And I'm pretty excited about it. I mean, I know it says, you know, all is vanity, but we're going to figure that out. Um, so we'll be in Ecclesiastes this morning, um, just starting with the verse, uh, verses 1 through 3. Uh, and uh, let, let's pray first. Heavenly Father, we look forward to diving into your word. Lord, Ecclesiastes is a difficult book, Lord, but it's there for a reason. And I'm confident that uh, through our, our study of Ecclesiastes, you will help us to grow in our faith and our knowledge of you, Lord, and, and be encouraged, Lord, be encouraged uh, as uh, parts of your kingdom, Lord, and be encouraged to share um, with this um, dying world, Lord, uh, the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord. And we thank you. We thank you for this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Ecclesiastes. But years ago, I read a book series called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And in one of those books, um, all right, so there's a bunch of people in this, this galaxy, and they decided to get together and build this supercomputer. All right, so it's this giant computer. And they designed, and they built, and they programmed this computer, uh, and of course they had unlimited resources, uh, with the intent that the supercomputer would give the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. Right, so that's what the computer is designed for. So generation after generation cared for this computer uh, while awaiting its answer, and finally the, the time arrived. And so that would be a pretty exciting day, wouldn't it? To get that answer to the question of life, the universe, and everything. And the supercomputer, which was called Deep Thought, uh, warned the people that they weren't going to like the answer. And, but they, they insisted, they wanted the answer. And he warned them again, you're not gonna like the answer. And they're, no, no, we've been waiting all this time. So finally, deep thought gave the answer. And the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything was 42. Okay. So obviously, deep thought's answer, 42, was pretty disappointing. Uh, to the people, and also, obviously, uh, the author of this book series, uh, his name is Doug Adams, and it's actually a trilogy that has about six books in it. Um, so he, he wrote the series as a parody, okay, a parody of many things, including science fiction, uh, and a parody of humanity. Uh, and, and by the way, the books are very funny. He's an English author, and he has that, you know, witty English humor. Uh, and, and while Adams uh, pokes fun at humanity's quest for, for these uh, huge questions, uh, the, the quest to find meaning in this vast universe of ours, the fact is that these questions are really serious. And, and um, the quest for the answers to these questions has plagued mankind for, you know, all the way since the beginning. 
questions such as, why are we here? You know, how did we get here? Uh, do our lives really have meaning, value, and purpose? Uh, or are we just randomly here for a relatively short period of time and, and then we just die? Uh, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? You know, all these questions. And then there are questions about death. You know, why do we die? What happens when we die? Uh, one thing we know for sure is that all people die. All people do physically die. I mean, all people. Uh, um, death has been called the great equalizer. Everybody dies, the rich, the poor, the, the weak, the strong. Death is the great equalizer. Uh, even Shakespeare's Hamlet says to Claudius the king, he says, a man may fish with the worm that hath eat of a king and eat of the fish that hath fed of that worm, nothing but to show you how a king may go to a progress through the guts of a beggar. All right, so I'm going to translate that for you. The king and the beggar, who obviously have distinctly different lives, they both end up in the same place. They both die and are simply food for the worms. Okay, there's your Shakespeare lesson for the morning. So the author of Ecclesiastes ponders uh, many of these same, que same questions, and over the next several weeks, um, I'm not sure you know, how long we'll go, I'm not exactly sure right now uh, where it's going to lead us, I haven't mapped it out yet, but we'll, we'll be exploring this uh, unique part of Scripture, which is, which is God's Word. So let, let's read verses uh, 1 through 3. Ecclesiastes. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So, Admittedly, that sounds kind of depressing. You either want to stop right there and go on to another book, or you want to find out what's this guy's problem and continue reading on. So, but one of the things we need to remember when we're when reading Ecclesiastes is that the book needs to be considered as a whole. Okay, we need to consider Ecclesiastes as a whole book uh, and not just pick and choose uh, certain verses. And because there are verses in the, in the book that apparently contradict one another. Uh, and there are thoughts and observations that the, the, the author shares that are not consistent with what the rest of Scripture says. And that's because in the book, Solomon seems to be looking back at his life. Right? Many um, experts think that Solomon wrote this book towards the end of his life. He's looking back at his successes, his failures, and all that he did and said and wrote and observed and learned. Uh, and, and he somewhat randomly uh, writes down his observations and some of his conclusions and how some of his conclusions actually change. And, and we'll see that in, in the book, how they changed over time. So he's musing, he, he's pondering, he's reminiscing. And, and some scholars even suggest that the book was written by Solomon as an act of confession uh, and repentance toward God at the end of his life. Because, you know, we know 
that um, you know Solomon started out great, but then he lived a life of debauchery and, and he had hundreds of wives and, and he basically kind of ignored God. Uh, so uh, some scholars think that this was written as an, this uh, Ecclesiastes was written as an act of confession and repentance. So uh, some things that we need to keep in mind as, as we go through Ecclesiastes. Well, first of all, Ecclesiastes is definitely scripture. It's God's word. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's in there for a reason. It's in there for our edification. Uh, as a reminder, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, including Ecclesiastes, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God and, and the woman of God um, may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Ecclesiastes is, is scripture. Uh, next, many of the, the author's uh, so-called conclusions are not to be taken literally, uh, or at least uh, as directives or commands. Uh, for example, one of the things that he says is, there is nothing better, okay, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Right, so that's one of his conclusions at one point in the book. And we've all heard that sentiment before, you know, eat, drink, and be merry. Uh, might as well live it up. Life is short, and we're all going to die. And, and believe it or not, and, and we'll get to this, there's actually some biblical truth in that, in that sentiment. And finally, the entire book needs to be read, studied, pondered, and preached, of course, in view of the author's conclusion at the end. And his conclusion is uh, the familiar fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So just we need to consider those things as we go through the book. So verse 1 um, is the preacher. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, some have disputed that, author, that Solomon actually authored the book, but, you know, there's a lot in the book that points to Solomon as the author, including this verse. I mean, Solomon was both uh, King David's son. He ruled in Jerusalem, and elsewhere in the book there are uh, references to Solomon's God-given God wisdom, uh, 116. His building activities, chapter 2 talks about his building activities. And then again in chapter 2, his immense wealth. So there's, there's a lot... Um, that point to, to Solomon as the author of this book. And the, the first uh, verse, Solomon refers to himself as the preacher or, or teacher. In Hebrew, in the Hebrew Bible, the book is called the, the Koheleth, um, which means the words of the preacher. And, and the term suggests one who speaks to an assembly of people. Uh, the Greek title, uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, that's, that's what we have for a title. Also means preacher, and, and it's derived from ecclesiast, from which we get the English word assembly, right? And, or called out ones, uh, and that's where we get our word church. Um, and Ecclesiastes does, in fact, make up a collection of the words of the preacher, the words of Solomon. And, and, and again, 
we need to be careful in how we interpret his words, uh, Kohelet the teacher, what he says. Um, another biblical example of, of being careful in, in, um, in, in how we uh, uh, take a verse is uh, in Psalm 137.9, the psalmist says, Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. I mean, seriously? That's, that's Psalm 137.9. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. All right, so we need to consider that in the context. We need to understand that the writer of the psalm was crying out to God. And, and after experience, experiencing defeat and exile at the hands of the Babylonians, the Babylonians were a ruthless people. They actually did that. They would throw their enemies' um, infants on the rocks. Uh, they were pagan. They were outside of the covenant. Um, and, and they were brutal. And, and the writer is pleading with God for justice and even pleading with God for retribution. But here, here's the thing. In the end, um, the psalmist sees God um, as a whole. He sees God as a just God and a sovereign God who's sovereign over all things and who will ultimately judge the Babylonians. So, so you can see in that psalm just the, the, the psalmist crying out to the Lord for justice but the whole psalm taken together is a submission to the Lord's sovereignty and that the, the Lord will ultimately uh, judge the Babylonians. So context is very important. So there are verses and passages all throughout Scripture uh, which just don't sit well with us, that make us uncomfortable, seem to contradict what we think we know about God and His kingdom and what we, what we think we know about reality. However, they're still in Scripture. They still need to be uh, considered carefully and, and prayerfully, which brings us to verse 2, the, what I call the proposition, where he says, the preacher says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities is an exclamation part. All is vanity. When the preacher says vanity of vanities, he's, he's stating something about as emphatic as he can. I mean, he can't emphasize that anymore. Um, he, he says it five times in, in just that one verse. Now, as we know, repeating something for emphasis is common in, in Scripture. Uh, even Jesus says, truly, truly, I say this to you. So he's, he's emphasizing the, the truly, truly. But here, the, the preacher is emphasizing more than just a word. He, he's emphasizing a thought. Uh, different translations. Uh, your translation might say vanity or meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Futility, useless, pointless, unprofitable. And uh, the word or the thought basically means all of those things uh, and, and more. And when, and when uh, used in different contexts of this book. The Hebrew word is havel, which gives the idea of vapor. Uh, it, it suggests things that are fleeting, uh, difficult to grasp, or in vain, or without purpose. So, so that's the idea that he's talking about. 
uh, John MacArthur was helpful in, in this. He, he suggests that the preacher uses the, the term hevel three different ways in this book. One way he uses it is, is the fleeting way, uh, which has the mind the vapor-like nature of life. Uh, even James uses this term in, in chapter 4 uh, of his book, uh, 4.14. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist. You are a vapor, a, a hevel, uh, that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You know, and the, the context there is uh, Christian businessmen, you know, tempted to make plans apart from God. And so even James uses that, that concept of, of vapor. And then also um, there's the idea of futility or meaninglessness. Uh, in, in the context of our fallen world, uh, under the curse, and the, the effects that that curse has uh, on mankind. And then finally, and, and this is the most common use of the term by the preacher, uh, incomprehensible, uh, referring to life's unanswered questions. You know, some, some things are just incomprehensible. Um, and again, that's the most common use in the book. So, so the question is, why does the preacher say this? Why does he declare that all is vanity? So with verse 3, we, we get a clue as, as to what the preacher wants to communicate. And, and I call this the problem, where the preacher asks the question, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Uh, the NIV says, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun. And the, uh, the New Living Translation says, what do, be, what do people get for all their hard work under the sun? So there's this idea of profit, this idea of gain. Uh, in fact, the King James Version says, what profit hath a man with all of his labor which he taketh under the sun? But the preacher's not just talking about work here. He's not just talking about our jobs, our employment. Uh, as we'll see, um, as we move on in, in the coming weeks, the, the preacher will consider the vanity of not just work, not just our employment, uh, but also the work and labor that we put into such things as acquiring wisdom and knowledge. Um, the, uh, the vanity of the, the work of uh, doing pleasurable things. Uh, the, the vanity or the work of living wisely, uh, and, and of course the work and labor of acquiring wealth and property and power and prestige. So he, he, he's going to address it and comment on all these things. And this is heavy-duty stuff. So, so he asks a heavy-duty question. What's the point of it all? What, do, what does man get or gain from all of this? It's all vanity. And, and at least initially, he declares it all to be vanity or, or vapor or fleeting. Uh, and, and by the way, the, the preacher uses that word vanity or havel 38 times in, in this book. So it's, it's a very important concept or, or thought for the preacher. So now I want to focus on the question, the preacher's big question. What's the point of it all? What's the point of life? Is life even worth living? 
And I would venture to say that most humans have asked that question or, or something like it at, at some point in their lives. Uh, I know I have. Um, but I also want to point out to you that God is not afraid of that question. Uh, whether you're here as a born-again believer or not, God welcomes questions like that. He's, he, he's not afraid of those questions. He's not afraid of those big questions, uh, especially the big questions. Um, years ago, I had the privilege of uh, helping my church at the time preach through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and, and as we progressed through the book, I was assigned the first part of Matthew chapter 11. So in, in Matthew chapter 11, Matthew tells us that John the Baptist is in prison and he's awaiting death. And John has a stunning question. All right, now here's, here's a guy who announced the arrival of the Messiah. He, he was the subject of prophecy and he fulfilled the prophecy in preparing the Jewish community for the Messiah to come and then presenting Jesus to the nation. Uh, here's a guy who, who Jesus later referred to as, you know, this is Jesus talking about uh, John the Baptist. Among those born of women, which is everybody, right? Among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. However, he's had a hard life. And now he's in prison, and he's probably expecting to get executed uh, for challenging Herod. And Jesus, Jesus hasn't exactly done what John has expected that he would do uh, in, in, his, in the eyes of many, right? Jesus hasn't exactly lived up to their expectations at this point. Uh, you know, which one of their expectations was, was that Jesus would lead them out of bondage uh, to Rome. So he sends his disciples to ask Jesus a question. And the question is, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Are you really the Messiah? That's John's question. In other words, Things haven't exactly turned out the way I thought they would. Things are looking pretty bleak right now. Was there a point to all this? I did what I thought was right. I even called out Herod on his um, adulterous marriage. And now I'm about to get executed and Jesus is nowhere to be found. I placed all my hope in this Jesus guy. And instead of leading us against Rome, Jesus is hanging out with a bunch of nobodies and telling parables all the time. What is the meaning of all this? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. I can just imagine that might be going through John's, John's mind. But I found that passage, I found that sermon to be very encouraging to me, reading about uh, John, uh, to me, it encouraged me. This rough and rugged, rugged wilderness man who fearlessly called people to repentance, including the powerful Herod, well, he had doubts. He had fears. He had a bit of a faith flop, uh, as I call it. He struggled with his faith. 
I find that amazing. And, and Jesus, this was Jesus' answer. He said, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And, um, I add this parenthesis, most, most importantly, the poor have the good news preached to them. So yeah, Jesus is saying, I am the one. Just trust me. And Jesus gives a mild rebuke. He said, and blessed is the one who is not offended or, or turns away from me. And then Jesus goes on spending the next 12 verses praising John and his ministry. So the moral of that in my mind is if John the Baptist had doubts and fears and his faith was weak at times and it's recorded in scripture, then I think God understands. I think God understands us when we have questions, when we have fears, when we have doubts, when our faith is weak. God understands even the big questions, like, did Jesus really die on the cross for me? Well, yes. Can Jesus really forgive me after all the things that I have done? Well, yes. The answer is yes. What must I do to be saved? Well, nothing. Jesus did it all. Just repent and believe, he says. Those are big questions that people have out there. Um, so back to Solomon, the preacher. You'll notice that at the end of verse 3, there's this little phrase where he says, under the sun. He said, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The preacher uses that phrase 29 times in Ecclesiastes, along with the related under heaven. So th this is important because what that refers to is life from a human perspective, a worldly perspective. That's what he means when he talks about things under the sun. So John the Baptist's question, innocent enough, was still from a worldly human perspective, based on his expectations of what the Messiah uh, would be like and do. But Jesus gave him a kingdom answer, a heaven-focused answer. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, many of the observations, the methods, and conclusions that Solomon came up with were from a human or worldly perspective. In other words, under the sun. But God's going to eventually lead the preacher to a heavenly conclusion. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. And uh, again, we, we look forward to what you have to say to us through this, this book, Ecclesiastes. And, um, and hopefully we can identify with the questions that the preacher, that Solomon has, Lord. And, and hopefully we can be satisfied with your answers, Lord, um, whether there is an answer or not, Lord. Hopefully we can be just satisfied in you. Lord, help us with that, we pray. Amen.